So Randy, we've been seeing quite a few new listeners recently. You're kidding me. No, we've got like probably several thousand new subscribers. That's amazing. It's really amazing. And if you happen to be one of those people that's listening to the show for the first or second or third time, we just want to let you know we're super glad you're here and just want to tell you a little bit about ourselves. Yeah, we're so grateful that you give us your time. That is so precious. We're so grateful that you just want to listen to our conversations, whether it's just the two of us or whether it's guests. We are grateful you're here and we love to hear from you. So whether that's getting in touch with us via email, social media, giving us guest recommendations, book recommendations, or if you have just any question for us about things that we talk about, we'd love to hear from you because we want to cultivate community. So welcome to the community, friends. Yeah, welcome to the community. And if you do want to get in touch, look in the show notes. Our contact info is there or just stay tuned to the end of the episode. I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle's a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air, around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. In this episode, we're talking to Bonnie Christian, who wrote the book Untrustworthy, and it's a very, very pertinent book, very, very relevant book. It's Untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. And I want to tell you, it is extremely relevant. And the ironic thing, the reason that I wanted to introduce this episode is because it's a book about epistemology. It's a book, in fact, about the epistemic crisis we find ourselves in in our culture. And the guy who is the co-host of this podcast with me is, in fact, an epistemologist. Yeah, what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> I felt bad for Bonnie going in, but you were kind and, oh, thanks. and nice I to tried. Her. I tried, yeah. Held back most of my hardest questions. No, uh, I'm kidding. Give, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great book, and she... Um, you know, she clearly has read a fair amount well of philosophy. Um, she's a journalist, I guess we should say, and, yeah. and writes in some major publications that you've probably read. Um, and yeah, it's a very timely book. I think it was came out at the end of 2022, mm-hmm. um, but it could easily have been written at any point in the last six, seven years. Um, yep. Yeah, she wrote it in 2021. And like any good credible journalist would. It's a well-researched book. She she did her homework. She speaks as a, an epistemologist often and not poorly. I mean, it's just, it's a book about basically how discourse is broken down in our world and how dialogue has ceased to exist because it's impossible to have conversation with people who aren't dealing in reality sometimes. And yeah. it's impossible when you're talking about two different realities, two different perspectives and worldviews that don't line up and maybe even one of those is not based in reality and not based in good faith arguments, what do you do then? And yeah. that's where we find ourselves in our in, in our current discourse that yeah. in our in our culture. And specifically, what do you do as a Christian? So that's what right. sets this book apart from several other similar ones that have come out mm-hmm. in the last several years and the one that I'm writing, frankly, like yeah. that are, you know, more mainstream, more secular. She's coming at it from a decidedly Christian vantage point and, you know, closing off each chapter, closing off each major line of thought with, and where does this leave us with Jesus and the church? And, yeah. Um, are there any special resources or um, obligations that we have as Christians. And so if you're, you know, if you're in a church situation where conspiracism has taken over or is threatening to take over, if you have family members who it's hard to talk to anymore because they turn every conversation towards 
some kind of, um, you know, QAnon or they, you know, want you to agree with all their internet derived beliefs. Who doesn't have those people? Um, and yeah. And, and yet you, you want to be their brother or sister in Christ. This right. is a book that is definitely written for you. Yeah. And just, just to show her credibility, I mean, she, she comes out in the book as a libertarian, you yeah, know, so yeah. a right-leaning person politically. And an evangelical. She, she claims in a footnote that she's happily, you know, subscribes to the quadrilateral and all that stuff. So, well, and even more than that, she's an Anabaptist and grew yeah. up as an Anabaptist. Yeah. So that's got some unique perspective to it as well. An Anabaptist libertarian wrote a book about the epistemic crisis we find ourselves yeah. in. So it's a fun interview. We're excited to share it with you. But first on this podcast, we taste tasty alcoholic beverages because we are a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar. And so today we have to taste a really unique first ever for this show. And this is like episode 60 or something. I don't know where yeah, we're at, I don't know either. but it's Myers rum single barrel. It's a uh, Jamaican rum, but the unique thing about it. So we've never tasted a, a rum in the show before, but it's a rum that was finished in Sazerac rye barrels. Yeah. And this is only available at our friends at Story Hill BKC. So a rum is unique enough anyways, but I think rum is having a moment. You see rum more often. Yeah. There's a lot more boutique rums, but this is rum that's finished in a Sazerac rye barrel, which is really unique. Yeah. I'm excited to try it. Yeah, so this is a, like a store pick for my friends at Story Hill. You might be able to find some version of this somewhere else. I will say Sazerac is my go-to um, like mixing rye. If I, you know, if I want to make a, a Sazerac or, or an old-fashioned with rye or something, that's what I reach for. So yeah. I'm excited about this. Well, so it has an, a really, really interesting nose. And by interesting, I mean, you got to really work to find appealing characters to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like State Fair Livestock Barn. That's one. There, it's, <laughs> it's I'm not just talking about the straw. No. Yeah, it does have It's a It's a little bit leathery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also got some sour characteristics to it. It does, yeah. That straw thing comes through prominently, but yeah. <laughs> barn and not necessarily just in the woody sense. Mm. It tastes really really interesting holy cow now i'm gonna be really really lame in this tasting because i haven't mm. had a rum i don't know if i've ever had a straight rum to be honest well, this with is you. so confusing it's so many different things across my head's the spinning right now you get the rye part like i i mm-hmm. am but it completely disappears by the end of it it's like there are stages to this at first it's just Almost uncut young whiskey. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. Very low proof, though. Like, yeah. I'm having trouble recalibrating from what normally happens at this part of the episode where we take a sip and it kind of, like, hits you nice and hard and you're like, oh, yeah, yep, okay. Uh, you got to dig a bit deeper for this. And it's, it's taken a completely uh, different path. Totally different. It becomes palette. rum halfway through. Yeah, that's it. It starts out as more of a rye slash whiskey, and then all of a sudden on your palate, it morphs and transforms into a rum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a different say- kind of rum. It's not, yeah. it's not my favorite, but it's a very interesting drink, which is part of what I look for in a drink is like, just, I want something that's going to be yeah. a conversation piece and that is unlike anything I've had before. This is definitely that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I would want to put this, I would want to ma- build a cocktail around this because mm-hmm. I think it could do some really interesting mm-hmm. stuff with the more right, than with the right a mixers. normal rum could do. I would say absolutely more because you know, it's got that rye spice and that woody character. Mm-hmm. That barnyard thing could be good in the right context. Oh yeah. But it's it's you know it's sweet like sugarcane <laughs> like it's it is a rum, but it's pretending to be something else. Yeah, I do. I do. I would really say if you're into rum in particular, if you want to mix a rum drink, try this. Like it's it's going to be different. It's going to stand out. 
because this is a podcast that has editing, could we quick make that cocktail and just like come back and like we could have the taste? We absolutely I feel like could. I might enjoy it more that way. Yeah, I'm done. What Let's what do rum mixers yeah. do you have? Uh, where would you go with this? God, I, I need some kind of citrus. citrus every, but I've got lime rum. and I've got lemon. Yeah, either of those would be fine. I'd probably lean Let's towards. See. Do you want to go up to the kitchen for a minute lemon. and yeah. figure this out? Let's do it. So neat. This is a little bit funky. It's wild, yeah. but it's like a whiskey that turns into a rum, and it doesn't know where it lands. In some ways, we decided to make a cocktail. Yeah. Right? So we don't know much about rum drinks, but this is a dark and stormy. Sort of. <laughs> we started with a dark and stormy, and then we decided we wanted something else, and so we kept adding stuff to it. So this is the Myers Myers Rum single barrel aged in the Sazerac Rye that you can find at Story Hill BKC, and we decided to mix it with ginger beer, which is a classic dark and stormy. Yeah. But then what did you add to it, Kyle, just for fun? Well, Elliot had this really cool juicer, so we put some lemon juice in there. A little bit of simple syrup and then some orange bitters to round it out. So I don't know what the heck you'd we call this. We added lime but... to all of them, too. There's oh, a lot did going we? on. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot going on in here, but it, it turned out nice. Yeah, I love it. This is the the cocktail porn on the podcast that <laughs> some people will hate. Yeah, for sure. But that's a delicious summer drink right there. It is, yes. I'm, I'm happy to endorse this uh, rum as an excellent mixer. Uh, if you want a little bit more of a highbrow. Yeah, and I promise drink. it'll yeah. be very unique to any other rum that you, you're going to mix for Dark and Stormy. Yeah. yeah, Dark and Steamy is what that's what we made. <laughs> it's a little okay. different. All right. There you go. <laughs> Ask for it at the bar at Story Hill. They'll know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. But do go to Story Hill, ask for Myers Rum aged in the Sazerac rye barrels, or go there and get the Hoot and Young that we sampled just a little bit ago. Go there and get all sorts of fun things there. I was with Joe at Story Hill BKC last week, hmm. and I was in their cellar, and they have some really, really fun stuff. They have nice. some crazy tequilas. They have, have some outrageous whiskeys. They Dude, we should do some, some tequila. funky stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. If he uh, wants he's to got throw like, us a bottle of tequila, I would not say no to that. Well, he was showing me like a five hundred dollar bottle of tequila, which we Our will next, not taste on the show. Yeah, Our next episode that. live from the <laughs> from the Story Hill the cellar. Story Hill <laughs> cellar. I like it. It's not as sexy as you think, but it kind of is. <laughs> but Excellent. this is delicious. Try dark and stormy on a on a gorgeous summer day, and uh, get yourself to Story Hill BKC. Get you some some whiskey, some liquor, or some food. And if you don't live in Milwaukee, support local. Support local. Cheers. We want to shout out one of our top shelf supporters. We couldn't do what we do without you guys. And Hannah Lehman, thanks so much. Hannah Lehman. Yeah. We love you. We love Incredible. you. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you so much. Speaking of top shelf supporters, if you would like to get a shout out on the show, the easiest way to do that is to go to Patreon and subscribe and for the $20 tier that's our top shelf tier you get all sorts of fun perks and one of those is a mention on the show but there's other options as well there's a monthly book club if you want to join that that we recently added that's the pappy tier uh, if you would like extra content and aren't so interested in the mention there's a middle tier middle shelf tier if you just want to support us there's a bottom shelf tier so head over to patreon and, and we're so fits. grateful we're so grateful for your support Well, Bonnie Christian, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
So the book is untrustworthy. The knowledge crisis breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. And man, what a timely book. Yeah. Seriously. And I just want to start out the interview with the way you started out the book, which was just settled me in so so firmly, both informing me on your point of view, where you're coming from, and what the book is going to be all about. And in, in the introduction, you, you begin with a story about your friend Jim. And it just roots you right away into what we're going to be talking about. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that story? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jim is older, um, like nearing retirement age, and he and his wife were thinking about um, buying a house in a, a new city to be near family. And I'm like all over Zillow, love to look at old houses. So everybody knows this about me. So <laughs> we were like, you know, sending some Zillow links back and forth, and they were going to look at some of the things that I'd sent this was in the fall of 2020. And so the election is getting closer and they, uh, Jim starts to realize like, Hey, maybe Trump is not going to win this thing. And he's like a big talk radio listener. I like, it wasn't so much like the election conspiracy theory type stuff. It was just like, he was realizing like, Hey, maybe, maybe Biden does win. Um, And that really freaked him out because of you know like what he was hearing in his media of choice um so much so that he decided that he he wouldn't buy a house in this city after all and i was just like flabbergasted like you're gonna change your plans because of the the election Mm -hmm. um and so we're talking about this and and things came to a head with like this line that's burned into my brain where he said like you know i just i don't want to be in the middle of a city in the middle of a million starving people i was just like what <laughs> and he was just so sure that you know if the the democrats came to power that like supply chains would break down like we'd be going like cormac mccarthy the road like everything was going to be the end of society as we know it and that they you know needed to get some land um somewhere where they could be like farming and of course now with three years three years later almost um or two two and a half you know none of that has happened Mm-hmm. And I was pretty confident at the time that none of that was going to happen. Um, not to say we haven't had some inflation, certainly, but yeah, he was he was just certain and certain enough that he he did change his plans and did not buy a house and used some of his down payment money on a on a camper trailer, which you know doesn't hold value mm-hmm. the same way that property does. Um, and so that was uh, sort of a, a moment where it became. This, this knowledge crisis that I'm writing the book about became super real to me because, you know, it wasn't just what he was thinking about, right? Like this had real consequences in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, like the sort of consequences that are very serious um, and and made it, yeah, it was shocking to me. Like I said, that line has burned into my brain. And and so when I started working on the book, it was like, yeah, this is this is a big part of it. This is a, like a very concrete example of how, how badly this can go. Mm-hmm. So Jim, your friend, uh, really kind of made a decision that changed, you know, maybe that's his retirement that he spent on that and changed the course of his family's future, perhaps. And I'm assuming he's a friend of yours. You're obviously a very sensible, smart person after reading the book. I'm assuming Jim isn't crazy, right? Like, <laughs> No, no, very reasonable guy. And, and you know, um, this is not like a case of, you know, he needs like mental health care. This is a case of he, he believed that this was going to happen because of the media he consumed. 
and the book was born. Yeah. Were you already writing it at this point or was that one of the triggers? Let's see. Fall of 2020. I was, I was thinking about it. I think I was, you know, sort of batting around a couple of different book ideas at the time, but it wasn't until after that, that I, I put together the proposal. Yeah. Well, it makes sense if that, <laughs> that'll, that'll trigger something for sure. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I haven't had anything quite that extreme, but I think a lot of our listeners are probably identify with that story and no family members or friends who are in very similar situations. So when you refer to a knowledge crisis, it's easy to see what you mean. So sad. Yeah. You don't need the stats, although there are some very disturbing stats in the book that, <laughs> that we'll get to. Um, but no, I think most of us probably know somebody who has made significant decisions based on really shitty information. Mm-hmm. Um so I've read several books uh, on these topics. I'm writing a book about mm-hmm. expertise as we speak, and so you know I'm coming across more and more. Um, other than the ones written by philosophers, most of them don't talk about philosophy. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and some of them I wish would, right, because they're talking about concepts that have long philosophical histories behind them. So when at the beginning of chapter one, your first little subheading was introduction to epistemology, I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you say in the book, you have a critique a couple of places of the phrase speaking as a blank, but I'm about to say it anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking as an epistemologist, like that's my, that's different that's though. That field. is, that is earned expertise. Yes. That is not, yes, not we're, just, we're going to get to that. Um, although you're just taking my word for it. That I was going to say, you guys could be, could be lying to We me could here. be anybody. Um, so why did you frame it that way? What? Uh, what what made you dive into the philosophy? Because it's all the way through, and there are mm-hmm. many different tacks you could have taken as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been interested in epistemology for a long time. Um, honestly, I I think going back to like my undergraduate degree, um, I did study political science, but definitely went more into like the political philosophy end of things, not so much like the math mm-hmm. <laughs> side of, of political science. Um, so it's been interesting to me for a long time, and. I would say in like 2017, 2018, 2019, like in those years in the run up to when I started thinking about like, this is a book, um, that was a, a, a topic that I kept coming back to in sort of my, my journalism work. I'm an opinion writer. So I, I, you know, have the leeway to talk about that sort of thing in the way that a reporter might not. Um, and it just seemed increasingly like something that people, did not know about and maybe really needed to know about in this time and place in which we find ourselves. And so, um, yeah, I, I think in my original proposal, I had, uh, like epistemic crisis in the, in the subtitle and Mm. my agent and editor advised me rightly, you know, you can't put that on the cover. People don't know what that word means. Mm. Um, and they're right from a marketing angle, but from like a, um, getting out of this mess angle, like that's part of the problem that people people don't know what this word means. And we're engaged in um, like epistemic activities all the time. We're always thinking about like we're always weighing truth claims and accepting, rejecting them, but we don't really recognize that that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate that. I'm right there with you. <laughs> it's one of the major points of having this podcast. Um, you, if anything, you're maybe a little more optimistic than I am about the usefulness of philosophy in this area, <laughs> like its ability to actually make any difference. Um, but, but it was a refreshing kind of take to an optimistic take to read. So I appreciate it. So 
I don't like questions like this, but I feel like I have to ask it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to couch a, a question, right? But in the in chapter one of your book, and then you go on and you do this several other times, you say that both political parties are at fault for this epistemic crisis that we find ourselves in. Now, I'll admit that the left is not perfect, for sure. It deserves its fair share of critique about a number of things. But mm-hmm. when it comes to this particular issue, the epistemic crisis that we find ourselves in, the the lies, the fake news, the, you know, all of the stuff that that this mm-hmm. book is about, it seems like a bit much of a both sidesism to to try to say with integrity that both sides of the political part political aisle are responsible for the epistemic crisis. When it seems to me like we didn't have this epistemic crisis until th- 2016 or 2015 during the election, and until Kellyanne Conway was talking about, you know. Uh, well, alternative, alternative facts, facts and <laughs> fake and news facts, yeah, yeah. and you know now we have just a, a plethora of actually just fake news that's just come out of nowhere so to me that seems a little just tell me why you say you want to yeah. go to lengths to say both sides i mean so i think it's completely fair to say that uh on balance in this exact moment in some ways, the right is worse, or at least worse in more obvious ways. I do think Donald Trump is a unique figure and the way that he sure. relates to, you know, tens of millions of people is unique. And there's not a exact comparison to that on the left, for sure. Um, the reason why I think it is a problem of the left as well is, and, and it definitely looks different, fully agree with that. Well, hang on, let me back up before I say that. One one other bigger factor of this is that I think that we would be in a very similar situation, even if you didn't have Trump. Hmm. Um, I think that the cultural and technological changes are such that maybe it wouldn't be quite as bad. Maybe it wouldn't be as bad in such like glaringly stupid ways as like alternative facts. Um, But I think a lot of the fundamentals would be the same if you take Trump out of the equation, but you have all the same like technological progression um the same overwhelming quantity of information that we're encountering i think that's a a big factor and so i don't think it's you know if if the right were sort of behaving itself being sort of like the right circa 2002 right i still think we'd have the the vast majority of what we have now as far as the left again i do think it looks different like a really obvious example to reach for here i think would be the way that the especially the very online left in America is increasingly like the very well-educated, the like academic elite left and thinking about like the, the way that people handle, like I would say it verges into like scientism, the way that like it goes beyond respect for expertise and like deference to someone who knows more than you and has true expertise to frankly getting weird in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Can you give an example started, of scientism for people that might not be familiar with that term? I mean, so I would, I'm thinking, especially in the context of the last few years of like the behavior around some of the pandemic stuff. Hmm. Um, like when people started posting like hard eyes for Fauci, like what is that? This man's a government official. He's a bureaucrat. You're, you're like in love with him. And then with him personally, and also a lot of uh public health officials, blatant admissions of noble lies, um, blatant hypocrisies where they're violating the rules they themselves have made. Um, Like that kind of behavior is so deadly to trust and expertise and we super need trust and expertise. And so like 
to my mind, that's a really grave undermining of truth um, and a really grave undermining of exports, expert sources of knowledge and, um, you know, really valuable opinion and, and wisdom that we need from, from well-educated people. And so, like, for me, the you know, there was the, the early lies, basically, about masks, saying, like, you shouldn't wear masks, when in reality, they just wanted to conserve masks for healthcare workers, right? And then shortly after, they come out and say, well, actually, we just wanted to conserve masks for healthcare workers. Masks are good, and you should wear them. Why would people believe that at that point? I mean, you know, I, I think you should have worn the mask, right? But the fact is, after a lie like that, that's terrible and you can't expect the public to buy into what you say after that and that that won't have a that won't contribute to epistemic crisis so there are other ways as well that's something that i think looms really prominent right now um in my mind certainly given recent history i think people go overboard with the both sidesism caution yeah. and awareness and by that i mean a lot of times it is really healthy to critique both sides of an issue and to say let's be honest about both sides i'm just not sure I'm just not sure this one is particularly for me uh, one where you can do that. But I don't want to. I don't want to turn this conversation into a debate. For what it's worth, it didn't stand out to me as strongly as it did to you. I noticed some of it, but it wasn't mm. like a major critique I had of the book or anything like that. I I don't always agree with some of the the targets. For example, I don't think Fauci was lying in the example that you use. Um, mm. But I can totally see the point, and I I definitely know after yeah. many years of teaching undergraduates who are mostly liberal that. Um, the seeds for epistemic crisis are very much there. <laughs> yeah, I, in fairness, I sort of distracted myself. The The example that I was heading towards with Fauci specifically was where he has this New York Times interview where it, he's talking about what you need to reach for herd immunity. Yeah. And he says, you know, originally I started at 60%. Then I thought the public is accepting of this. I can bump it up to 70, 80, 90%. There's no basis in scientific fact there, right? It's pure PR. And he's admitting openly that he picked numbers at random based on what he thought the public could receive, not on any actual scientific fact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's just like egregious. Yeah. I don't want to get too into weeds of that. But I read the situation differently. <laughs> Let's just say really? that. Yeah. Well, um, we can, we can move on, but I, I'm curious. Yeah. And there's also some background about the noble lie. I mean, it's a huge controversy in philosophical sure, yeah. circles. Um, I mean, there's a large wing of um, politicians who are like very in favor of like Leo Strauss, for example, who advocated and sort of popularized that kind of view. Um, and it's, it's rather complicated. Um, I, I just have a hard time believing that he was not acting in good faith in that situation, but I could be wrong. You know, it's, I don't know the guy, so who knows the way I read it. It was just like, there was a reasonable range of, uh, sure. of statistical probabilities. And he chose one that seemed to make good strategic sense. And then the situation changed and he did a different thing. And this is related to a question I'm going to ask you later about like, what should an expert right. do when they have different information? I think it can be at once good faith and also, terrible PR and undermining public yeah, trust, absolutely. even if it was well-intended. Like, I don't think it, it requires there to be like any malice on his part. Right. Yeah. So maybe we're using the word lie differently then, right? Cause when sure. I, um, that's a morally laden term. And so, yeah. um, anyway, that's not <laughs> one of the places <laughs> I really wanted to focus. Rabbit trail, yeah. So in chapter two, something that I found fascinating that we actually mentioned when we were doing a recording yesterday was mm -hmm. your research that said, once we humans make a statement about you know, what we mm. believe publicly, we don't like to reverse them. And you mm -hmm. have some research that you looked into. Can you tell us about that, especially as it pertains to social media? Because everyone says things publicly today. Yeah. So the research is really wild. It's, um, you know, that thing where you draw two lines of the same length and then on one you have 
like arrows facing out and on the other you have arrows facing in and so the one with the arrows facing in um looks much smaller than the one with the arrows facing out and so basically the, the research that they did was um they would have people guess you know are these lines different lines the same same amount and they had some people just think it to themselves some people write it down some people say it aloud to the group and what they found was like you know this is a belief of no consequence like nobody's gonna think you're stupid if you get it wrong it's whatever um but the people like the more they had committed themselves to it and the like the more like so the people who wrote more than the people who thought and the people who spoke more than the people who privately wrote um they were very resistant to changing their minds uh, and so, you know, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it, right? Nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to look like a inconsistent or a flip flopper. Um, and so when you put things out in, in print, um, in public, then when you're confronted with evidence that maybe what you said wasn't actually right, uh, it's harder. It's harder to go back on it and to say, um, not only here's my new opinion, but I was wrong before. And I think uh, we all know we have it in the back of our minds that, you know, you might even try to just say like, here's my new opinion. And then someone could dig it up and call you out. And so that, that knowledge, um, whether it's conscious or not, I think does make it, it harder for us to, to change our minds once we've posted. As if it's a bad thing to say, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got more information than I had when I said that. And now I've changed my mind as if that's not a good thing for a human being to do. Right. Yeah, which is so weird, but you know that it it feels it feels awkward to do it. Even even I think though we would we would all say like yeah, it's great to update your opinions when you know more, but in practice it doesn't mean we do it. And how does that affect this, you know, our discourse? I think it was what you were talking about in that part or even that epistemic crisis that that we're doubling down on things that we know were are not true. Yeah, well, the like the the social media situation is unique in history, right? Like in in decades past you just only had so much opportunity to talk about this stuff. Like you, you, you didn't have a phone with you, a, a mm-hmm. way to broadcast your opinions to everyone you know at just about any hour of the day. And now you do. And so once sort of just like practical realities of life and, you know, social norms and not being a jerk to whoever you're standing next to in line or whatever, like that would have constrained uh, your, your airing of your opinions. And a lot of it would have just stayed in your head. Um, and now we, we all have this opportunity all the time, and, and in many cases, we, we do just sort of, you know, play pundit constantly. It made me think about how much easier it would have been to be friends with people who think differently than you before mm. social media, right? Like, I've yeah. literally got people it that was. I It was. You remember it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember it. <laughs> you didn't know that Jim thought that that way, or, you know... Jim didn't was, know he thought that way. No. <laughs> and everybody's got a Jim in their lives that, yeah. like, I love this person deeply. How can they think this way? And then all mm. of a sudden it starts changing and tainting the way you see them. Man, I long for the day when I don't know everything about the way this person thinks and all their opinions, because they probably are more than their opinions. But now today, that's, all, that's yeah. all we see now. Yeah, it's... um, It's... It's tricky. Uh, I don't. And then you get into this sense of like, well, do I have a, a moral responsibility to confront them? Like, like that was a right, thing for right. a few years there, especially there was like that big spate of how to show your racist uncle at Thanksgiving, like how bad he is. Hmm. Um, because we all know that what persuades, you know, 60 year old men is having like a 19 year old <laughs> tell them they're wrong in front of all their family. <laughs> <laughs> Works every time. Yeah, very effective. Yeah, especially after a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> Related to that, so one of the things I notice a lot about 
expertise and people's relation mm-hmm. to it in the public sphere is that often an expert's changing their mind is interpreted as a failure mm-hmm. um, of expertise itself. And so mm-hmm. you talk about um, changing per- perceptions of expertise, uh, where whereas it used to be like uh, when a, a conspiracy theorist is a good example, when a conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist back in the day, back in the day being like, um, 1995 the 90s <laughs> right, right. The, the way to the, be a the conspiracy late 1900s yeah. right yeah. Oh, some God. kids are saying my daughter late, would say that yep late 20th oh. century um like the way to be a good conspiracy theorist was to marshal lots of evidence and lots of arguments and throw as many of mm-hmm. them at your opponent as you could and appeal to expertise in a very heavy-handed way it's just an alternative mm-hmm. set of experts whereas conspiracists today operate quite differently, right? There's uh, there's a hostility to the notion of expertise itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to get you to talk about that a little bit, because I've noticed it too. Um, and maybe just while you're doing that, d- give us this distinction between conspiracists and conspiracy theorists. Yeah, let me start with the latter. So that distinction is not unique to me. Um, it comes from a book called A Lot of People Are Saying, yeah, uh, by one. a pair of political scientists whose name I don't have memorized off the top of my head. But the, the basic idea is, like as you said, that, that conspiracy theorizing in sort of the classic sense is, as you've described, it's like a lot of, you know, it's, it's the wall with the red strings and you're connecting all the dots and you're, you know, meeting in the parking garage and getting the classified documents and, and building this elaborate case for for proof that this conspiracy has happened. Um, and, you know, sometimes that will be right. More often, probably it'll be wrong, but you're, you're building a case. Conspiracism is what, what this book calls conspiracy without the theory. And so it's, it's not really going to all that effort. You know, there's, there's not necessarily any documents there. There's not necessarily any proof. Um, there's a lot of accusations. There's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of like, huh, that sure seems to fit. Um, and it's really just like you, you've picked people that you have already decided are bad, probably because of pre-existing political differences, and then just sort of like go looking for bits and pieces that make sense. Um, and the, the QAnon movement is a, a really great example yeah. of this, right? There's, there's no actual uh, proof that like elite Democrats are eating kids, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the various, <laughs> various uh, branches of the conspiracy theory. Um, I shouldn't even call it the conspiracy theory because it's not. There's right, there's not much of a theory there, yeah. and it's always and that's why it can always change. It's very flexible, right? So like if if one prediction doesn't come to pass, that doesn't really matter. That yeah. doesn't. There's no theory to blow up. You just move on to a new accusation, exactly. a new prediction. And it's like its adherents know that, right? It's uh, it's distributed by design so that mm-hmm. there's no central figure that can. If if they topple, the whole thing topples. That's yeah. It's it's like a a really good comparison is that it's like a a game like that yeah. people are playing together, um, and you're sort of you know you're building the game together in sort of like a Dungeons and Dragons style, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're all telling the story together, um, and there's not uh, there you know there were these obviously these these posts by by Q that that launched it. But Q can stop posting and the story can yeah. keep going. And like all the reporting I've seen on this is that they're pretty sure they know who the first Q was, but there are mm-hmm. like a, several people who have played the role, it sounds like. Yeah, I think they're pretty certain. I don't know if there's like a, I don't know the extent of the, the smoking gun, but I don't think it really matters to mm-hmm. the vast majority of people who are involved in that because exactly. they don't you know, they can believe what they want to believe about who Q is and they can believe what they want to believe about the whole thing. And so like there's different versions of it, right? Like in some versions of it, 
Trump is still president now and like Joe Biden is a puppet for him basically or maybe he's a hologram or maybe he thinks he's president and he doesn't you know know that he's not actually like there's so you you can you can make of it what you want it's um endlessly malleable yeah so that's that distinction and then the other question was like the changing uh views of expertise is that right yeah the one thing you mentioned the idea that we see experts changing their mind is a failure now um and i think that's true i also think it's somewhat something of a novel situation where in the past when you sort of like those decisions happened behind closed doors to a real degree right and so people experts would do their deliberations do their experiments what have you and then come out sort of with the final product or at least a product that would be final for a little while um whereas now we see them you know arguing on twitter we're getting Mm -hmm. like updates and changes in real time things happen so much more quickly partly because like technology enables it to happen and partly because social media and the the constant invitation of experts to come talk on cable news or what have you uh, allows them to sort of give live updates along the way. And so for a non-expert audience, it's very easy to to look at those live updates and say why why haven't you figured it out yet? Like why yeah. why are you arguing about this? Why 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 don't you have the answer yet? And of course, this is going to be complicated by the fact that having real expertise in one subject does not necessarily make you a good communicator. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily give you any knowledge of, of how to talk to the public in a way that won't freak people out, right? Yeah. And so, um, but now every like experts, just like everyone else, has that megaphone, has that opportunity to talk to the public. And so they can have, at the same time, real expertise and really poor PR skills and a public that you know doesn't have expert knowledge probably feels like it has expert knowledge because it can Google. Yeah. And so that all together just makes for a terrible loss of trust in something that we very much need. And real expert failures do happen. But then there's also this like very natural and appropriate revising. I think those two categories just get mashed together. It's a terrible effect. Yeah. And it results in really horrifying statistics like this one that I found in your book. Um, about 15% of Americans, at, at, I think it was 2021, endorse QAnon beliefs. So it's like they wouldn't necessarily have self-identified as QAnon adherents. But when asked, do you you know, subscribe to these tenets or whatever you want to call them, they did, like all of them. <laughs> um, and then an even worse statistic, when you look at white evangelicals specifically, it's like maybe half like 30 to 50%. I don't 50%. think that it was it was very high. It was like 50 55%, but I don't think that half was necessarily the whole package okay. so much as like at least Some something of them. significant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but even just that 15% statistic, you cite somebody saying that's about the same number of like white mainline Protestants. Yeah. <laughs> which that is was a, shocking. I had to read that like 3 times so right? I thought I was like this can't be right. Yeah. Insane. It's one of the more depressing parts of the book, to be honest with you. It, <laughs> as a pastor, mm-hmm. this you know you had a chapter where you you talked about interviewing a couple pastors and faith leaders and talked about you know the conspiracy theorists, QAnon followers, or people who believe stuff mm-hmm. about it in their churches. And I just got this sense, and this is not this is not unique to your book, is not unique to the people that you interviewed. I'm, I'm a pastor. I have, lo- have lots of friends who are pastors, and I just got this sense of um, pastors thinking. What do I have to say about this? Because the minute I talk about how, you know, it's unchristlike and really just 
crazy for a Christ follower to believe in these conspiracies and conspiracy theories and conspiracism. Um, I'm going to lose a third of my church. And I mm. could never do that because I've got bills to pay because I've got, you know, all the, this, mm-hmm. that, and the other. And it's just, it's actually made me want to to write and to talk, have a whole episode about, like, we need to be willing to lose people from our churches because pastors, if pastors can't talk about an epistemic crisis like this, and if pastors can't talk about 30 to 50% of their church believing in conspiracy theories, and maybe way more than that in some contexts, I'm sure, if we can't talk about those things, why are we pastors? Why are we leading mm-hmm. a church? Why are we trying to disciple people unto the, the way of Jesus? I, are you as frustrated by that as I am, Bonnie? I am, though I would also add maybe some, and obviously I'm not speaking as a pastor. I don't envy the role of pastors ever, but especially right now. But I would add maybe some qualifiers, which are, so they leave your church, right? Well, now, is there anyone in their lives who's going to be able to push back on this at all, right? Like that's, to me, that's a difficult, legitimately difficult question. Is it is it better to be strident enough that they go because, I mean, you're, you know, you're confident in the truth of what you're saying? Or is it better to try to, you know, speak with them gently and privately and, and have at least some input in their lives that's not QAnon? I don't know. I mean, that's a, like, that's, I don't think that that's something you can answer at the mass scale. I also think it's complicated by the fact that even more now than a few years ago, there's been so much sorting about this, right? Mm-hmm. Such that the the pastor who wants to speak out, he probably doesn't have many of those folks in his church anymore, and he would be just preaching to the choir. And that's not to say, like, don't do it, right? Like, it's good to reinforce it with people who are not, um, you know, deep down that road. But in many cases, I think that the the sort of people who who are deep down that road have already gone to to churches that are going to reinforce their beliefs. And so the the pastor who wants to speak out and the person who most needs to hear it are probably not going to sure. be in contact in many places. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I was at a an event um, in Chicago a few months ago that was talking about like themes related to the book. And there was an audience question that was basically like, why aren't pastors and, and especially sort of like national evangelical leaders speaking out about this obvious problem that you have like among your people. And so I was talking over like, you know what I'm saying here? Like, yeah, I mean, in many cases they should. And, but it, you know, there are messy reasons. There's also, as you said, like these practical reasons of, does your church collapse and die when half of your congregation leaves, right? And because they can't keep the lights on. Um, but the other big part of it is, and this connects to our, our discussion of expertise, it's not like there's one, there's no evangelical pope. It's not like there's some greater hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Where you could have some widely recognized authority figure say, this stuff is wrong and bad, and you guys are in epistemic crisis, and here's what you need to be thinking about this. Um, that that people could would be in some sense like required to listen to, um, because you can just leave and go to a different church mm-hmm. and hear exactly what you want to hear, uh, and it's not like they're both reporting to the same bishop or something like that. So, yeah, I, I share your frustration. I also understand why some pastors hesitate. I do too. I really do. I mean, I have. Again, um, many peers who are in that boat, but I think it's somebody should write a book called "The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind" because right. 
I mean, <laughs> I think most of the people that we're talking, you know, you're correct in saying there's a lot of people who are really hardcore QAnon followers or um, MAGA uh, evangelicals who are mm-hmm. already down the road to Greg Locke's church, you know, and there's there's no coming yeah. back from that. But I do think there's a lot of people, especially the ones that you speak to in the book, who would never say they're a QAnon follower, mm-hmm. but unwittingly um, follow a lot of QAnon perspectives because they've been mm-hmm. told that by their family or by their talk right. radio or whatever. And I think there are many who, if, if, if a pastor came out and said, you know, let's, let's have a real conversation about the things that we, we believe and that we are, you know, moved by as a people, as opposed to the gospel, I think there are some people mm-hmm. who would leave for sure. You, you're, you're going mm-hmm. to lose people if you talk about conspiracies and conspiracy theories. But I do think you're going to actually win over some and get them to think, wow, like I, I didn't know I was believing that. You know, I think, I do think there's still a, enough people to make it worthwhile because if we don't first of all our churches are going to turn into cults like greg Locke's church you know whether we like it or not if we're not going to be able to speak to it out loud and also just as a pastor that's where i just want to say if we're not able to speak into our congregation's lives in real ways challenge them by the gospel and call them to follow jesus then we're not pastoring anymore then we're not actually serving the church we're actually just trying to entertain people and keep you know, a budget, uh, what it was in the good old days. And that is something that I hope no pastor is interested in. And I think that that is touching on a a bigger issue that I realized as I was writing and also realized that I was not the person to address it at a large scale and that there wasn't Mm -hmm. room for it in this book at a large scale, but it's wrapped up in a bigger issue of like ecclesiology and like pastoral authority. And obviously there are really good reasons. Um, we can all think of, you know, scandals and, and examples of abuse, mm-hmm. why people are wary of strong pastoral authority and, and why people are wary of staying and like submitting themselves to that hard teaching of discipleship, right? When some part of them wants to reject it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how, I don't know if it's possible to, to move past the, the bigger epistemic crisis until we figure some of that stuff out as well. Um, and how to to do that in a in a healthy and like obviously non abusive way. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, it's it's almost like fast forwarding to the end. But I had the thought as you two were talking of like the the people who are hard and entrenched, and we all have those people in our lives. Most of us, um, unless you're like living on some liberal, you know, atheistic island somewhere in New York. Um, we all have those people in our lives, and I want to say for the people who are really entrenched, for the people who are just like have given themselves to it, I have very little hope, if any, that they're ever coming out of that. Like you have some good, good tips in the end of your book of how to, how to detox from social media, how to, how to quiet your mind a little bit, because we're so, you know, there's a, a many, many good recommendations that you have at your end, at the end of your book, but I'm skeptical that any of them will work on the people who are buying a hook, line and sinker. What are your thoughts? Yeah, like the people who don't know that there's a problem, right? And so, you know, that's that's obviously someone who's never going to, like, take those suggestions and try to apply them for themselves. I don't know. I, I don't want to say that I have no hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's a fool's errand to think that someone is going to change their minds, you know, in a six-month, two-year, five-year timeline. That's It's probably going to be a very long timeline if it happens at all. I would say for a lot of people, I don't necessarily even know that there's going to be a a mind change so much as a a deprioritization and like mm-hmm. a refocus of attention. And so maybe those beliefs are still there, 
sort of lurking in the back of their minds. Um, And that just is what it is. And like, we're all probably wrong about stuff and hopefully not too severely. If it can become less relationally destructive, less, you know, destructive of of personal choices they're making, like where to buy a house or if to buy a house. Um, Mm -hmm. If you can have some improvement on that, like relational and practical side of things such that, you know, again, even if the beliefs are still there, it's not the main thing in your life anymore. I think that is possible. I, you know, there are many cases yep. where it won't happen. And you can, if you want to be really, really sad, go look up the, the QAnon casualties subreddit oh, and man. read people's stories yeah. about like their family members getting in, you know, so deep that they just cut off relationships because they can't be, you know, they can't have a loved one who doesn't agree with them on all of this stuff. But I think that for a lot of people, it's possible to avoid that, which may not seem like that might seem like a low bar, but I don't know. I think Mm -hmm. that's pretty important. Yeah. And I mean, one more thing and I'll let Kyle last, last few questions because I know that he's got some good ones, but I do like your approach of saying, just don't argue. Like Mm -hmm. it's whether it's on social media or in person, don't argue about it because it's like, I've never seen it actually work what might work is actually drawing their attention to some more beautiful things to some more real things to some more good things in drawing their attention away from the stuff that they've been filling their minds with that seems in my experience like the best advice i could hear and or give somebody yeah and i mean it's advice for like myself as well like when i i don't argue online anymore really but back when i used to i would be like jumpy like i'd log off but i knew that it was still out there and i'd be like a little like hyped up like trying to calm myself down before i went back and looked again and it wasn't even like anger it was to some extent fear like has has someone gotten on there and just really dragged me um and in real life i think there like for me the, the bigger risk is that you know if the argument isn't going anywhere productive and it's not going to that you know i i will get angry and and how is that going to make them more likely you know the next time we talk to give any credence to what i say even if what i'm saying is something much more neutral or like you know come to dinner with me right because i've just yelled at them over Mm. some political belief they have Mm -hmm. yep yeah and i want to come back to that later um and we're going to talk more about the internet and uh, Bo Burnham, who was probably my favorite part of the book, <laughs> big fan. Um, so we're going to get to that. First, though, I want to take a somewhat more challenging line of questioning, if that's okay. okay. Um, sure. I, I really enjoyed your book. I, I like you. You seem like a nice person. I did not enjoy <laughs> Chapter 7. <laughs> uh, and this is this is the one about identitarian deference. Um, I, you know, I thought that this was the chapter that people might get mad about is uh... – it hasn't happened yet. So yeah, that's interesting. I had I didn't hear it come up on any of the interviews I listened yeah. to, which kind of surprised me. Well, let me first p- pose it like this. First, what is that? Uh, where does the idea come from? Why is there a chapter about it in the book? And how important do you take that chapter to be to the thesis of the book? So the idea comes from a man named Matt Brunig, who runs the People's Policy Project. Um, and he came up with this, I, I want to say it's like 2013, quite a long time ago. Um, and the idea is basically that... Uh, he's naming it as a critique. He's not advocating for it, but the idea is basically that people will expect deference to someone who is the more historically oppressed conversation partner, um, especially on issues relating to their oppression. And so 
you mentioned earlier the phrase speaking as a, so it's something like if you're talking about racism and one person is white and one person is black, the black person can say, well, you know, speaking as a black person, here's what I think. And the white person needs to defer to them because they have superior knowledge and experience of it. And so the critique that Brunig makes, which I won't go over in full because he's very logical guy and has, you know, quite a lot of steps that would be tedious to to say in a podcast format. But the gist of it is basically like it's it requires a, a previous logic of or a previous idea of of who is oppressed. Um and it doesn't make a lot of sense in practice. Um and that the way that it frequently works is that people come to their own conclusions, then they find someone of the um, you know, the oppressed demographic who agrees with them and point to them and say, look, here's a person who's saying what I think, and we have to listen to them because they they are in the right demographic. And beyond that, as you know, others have pointed out, I think it, it functions as a a conversation ender, mm-hmm. um, where you know, if if someone invokes that um, epistemically superior identity for the sake of this conversation, well, then the other person is just sort of, what can they say, right? Like they don't have the uh the standing to to challenge it regardless of like the the quality of the ideas or or arguments or facts evidence being being asserted um as far as how important i think it is i think that depends a lot on the context that you're in um and whether you're encountering this very much i think there are plenty of people who are not encountering this very often I also think that there are um, places where it where it does happen and where you see critiques of people's writing or or arguments that have nothing to do with the the truth of what they've said, the the reason of what they've said, the evidence of what they've said, and just have to do with them being, you know, the wrong person to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does seem like an unwise impediment to getting at the truth. Yeah. So thanks for that, that uh, overview. Appreciate it. Yeah. I was not convinced by his argument. <laughs> um, it seems, <laughs> it seems relatively easy to me to determine who the oppressed are <laughs> and it doesn't like it's, it's a kind of publicly available evidence. It doesn't have to be something you discover autonomously, right? It's, it's out there. Like it's, um, I can make a pretty easy case appealing to premises that any reasonable person should be able to get behind that African-Americans are more oppressed than white men. Like that's not. And I don't think he would agree, disagree with that. I think that his point is that you can make that prioritization without, or you can make that determination, excuse me, without making the leap to deference. Yeah. So deference is definitely an extra step. I think it's a reasonable step in some cases, but his, he seemed to be making some kind of circularity argument that I just didn't think was there. Like we Mm -hmm. can start with a kind of public evidence and then determine if it is then a reasonable step into deference. And I think in some cases it is. Now I will say this, um, you do a good job of describing the worst version of it in the chapter. Mm. Um, and so if I had a critique of that chapter, I guess it would come down to some kind of straw man, uh, situation mm. that was maybe happening. Now I've definitely seen the thing you're critiquing on Twitter. Like it's, it's there, <laughs> it's, it's in social media. Um, and if that's the target, then fine. Um, but one thing I, I tend, I like to do, and I always did this with my students as well, is try to get them to look at the best version of a view before critiquing it. Right. Sure. Um, and so I kept waiting in this chapter for that version to make an appearance, and then it never did. Um, mm. And so at the end of it, 
I was left a little disappointed because you can easily come away from that chapter not knowing anything about this or the background of it or anything like that um, with the idea or the impression that the whole connection between epistemic deference or epistemic privilege and identity is just hopelessly confused. And it's just not the case. If, if that were the result, then I think it would be a kind of straw man rejection. So for example, there's a probably 40 year tradition in epistemology, particularly feminist epistemology that has a rich and varied account of this relationship. And there are longstanding debates amongst feminist epistemologists about what they call standpoint epistemology or standpoint mm-hmm. theory. Um, and there's some very interesting stuff to learn there and some very interesting um, example cases that get used. And I think there are some very productive uh, fields of research, including in hard sciences and things that you might not expect that have come out of those discussions. Feminist uh, philosophers of biology, for example, who will describe uh, in detail the ways that biological research might have gone differently if women were involved and how it has gone differently since women have been involved and how maybe having women Uh, in those spaces can give them a kind of epistemic privilege because they can see things both from the perspective of the marginalized and from the perspective of uh, the, I don't want to say the oppressor because it's kind of Marxian, but you know what I mean? Like the, they can see it, they they have this kind of double vision, which does go back to Marx. And so they can see it both ways. Whereas the one on top of the hierarchy can only see it in in the one way. There's lots of insights that I think are very rich and very valuable that come from that tradition. And they didn't show up in that chapter. And also they're just like, there are cases where that kind of deference just seems to make intuitive sense. So, for example, um, George Yancey is a philosopher who writes a lot about race. He wrote mm-hmm. a, a probably my favorite opinion piece that I've ever read in the New York Times. It was a letter to Christians asking them to just listen to him about racism. <laughs> I think <laughs> I it read was brilliant. this um, relatively recently. Yeah, it was just a few or? years ago. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he, he, he uses this example of being on an elevator. He's a, I don't know, 56, 50, 60 year old man, black mm-hmm. man gets on an elevator. You know, he's a professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like he gets on an elevator, uh, to go to his car and a white woman is standing in the elevator and immediately tenses up when he gets mm-hmm. on the elevator. He says, this is a regular occurrence. It's not like it happened one time. Um, and then he, he has a really interesting and really detailed, explication of that experience and he goes through it with his students regularly and he wrote a paper describing all of his students quick responses and some of them are really reasonable responses but they're so quick (laughs) and Mm. that it that it raises the point rhetorically why are you going there so quickly instead of trying to understand how i'm describing this experience to you from my perspective and so we can imagine that kind of situation Let's say you have the white woman on the elevator and you have a white guy on the elevator and George gets on the elevator and the white woman tenses up and George says that's racist and the white guy says, no, it's not. It seems like George might have an epistemic privilege perspective in that situation. So I, I'm wondering if can, you can see some kind of reasonable version of that. Sure. Yeah, no, and I don't disagree with that. And I, granted, I would have to go back and look at the chapter again with this in mind. My recollection uh, is that I did allow that that there are times when when your unique experiences and perspective and standpoint yes do give you insights that others will not have um, that will that it will let you raise questions that others will not know to ask Um, I think that that is in there is it in there as much as it could have been maybe not 
um, that you may be quite right about that, that it could have been emphasized more. Um, so yeah, no, I, it's not my intent to suggest that, that people's perspectives are never valuable, that there's, that it's never going to give you a unique angle on things, but rather that if it becomes a tool to end the conversation rather Mm -hmm. than to expand it. And in the, you know, the op-ed that you're talking about, I would say that's certainly expanding the conversation. Yeah. Um, that that's when it becomes a problem. And as you say, it is something that happens a lot on social media. As for how much it happens in real life, like I said, I think that depends a lot on the context that you're in. Probably, like I said, there are a lot of people who are not encountering this at all and would read that chapter and say like, oh, that seems bad. I don't really see that happening. Yeah, It is inevitably a, a pretty internet-focused book. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And so yes. maybe overstating for the average person's experience how much the, Fair the enough, worst yeah. version is happening. Let me ask one more follow-up to that, and then I want to talk about the internet, and then we can be... Just, sure. just about done. If that's okay, I don't want to keep you too long. Yeah, no, um, no worries. Do you think? Because at the end of that chapter, you say something very strong. Um, I'm going to quote it here. Um, okay. So you put some serious religious weight on the importance of your point about identitarian deference. You say if white men have one epistemology and black women another, the whole New Testament vision of humanity redeemed and made one in Jesus is undone. So that makes it seem really significant, right? Um, what I want you to help me understand is how you avoid succumbing to your own critique of this kind of deference by relying on your Christian identity as a way of framing the right approach to disagreement. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I would say two things. One is that that quote, hopefully, um, reads as an explicit callback to a, a block quote earlier in the chapter from Mark Lilla. Hmm. So he's talking about his experience as a professor at Columbia University, and he says, you know, classroom discussions that might once have begun, I think A, and here is my argument, now take the form, speaking as an X, I'm offended that you claim B. This makes perfect sense if you believe that identity determines everything. It means there is no impartial space for dialogue. White men have one epistemology, Black women have another. So what remains to be said? What replaces argument then is taboo. Yeah. So in that case, um, the specific scenario that I'm pointing back to, again, is not these people have different standpoints and different things to contribute to the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's one person shares what she believes and the other person has to simply be silent because there's nowhere right. else to go. So is it the case that your central critique of this kind of view is that it makes argument and disagreement impassable based on your yes. identity? Okay. Yeah, I was just saying, why, why do you think argument should be passable? But there's a difference between reaching that after having heard both people's points, both people's perspectives, both people's evidence, and saying, well, you know, after considering all of that, I just don't come to the same conclusion that you do, Mm -hmm. as opposed to one person is able to speak and share their experience and their standpoint, and the other person isn't really able to contribute. Yeah. It just seemed to me like, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, it just seemed to me like you were falling back on an idea of Christian unity as a justification mm-hmm. for why disagreement must be passable in the end. And if that's what was happening, then you're doing the identitarian deference thing, right? Because I'm a Christian, I'm committed, it's my conviction that there is a kind of ultimate unity where identity will not keep us from one another entirely. Yeah, I would say the unity is not complete agreement on everything. Mm-hmm. Um 
this is going to be like the worst line I've ever said, but if you're familiar with my first book, um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> the, the whole concept of the first book is, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff Christians disagree on. Let's go over the disagreements and, you know, see what they are and understand that thinking this other thing does not make you any less a Christian mm -hmm. than, you know, uh, whatever, whatever position it is you favor. So I don't, when I, I'm alluding to Christian unity there. It's not lockstep agreement on yeah. everything that, you know, we believe, right? Like there's going to be disagreement. Um, it's more a procedural argument about how the conversations are happening and how that agree to disagree moment is being reached. Yeah. Yeah. And I can say, I mean, I, I anticipated this conversation as I was reading the chapter, honestly, um, <laughs> because I re was reading your chapter and it was, you know, well thought out and i know kyle um <laughs> and i don't mean that as a dig i just mean i know I, I feel like i know your mind a little bit and i think both are correct um i was uncomfortable with the with the chapter in some ways um because i think uh, there's been a correction that's been long long needed as far mm -hmm. as listening to people who are in oppressed communities that's just mm -hmm. like i think that's an easy yes and then i do think that like much like in many other cases, there might have been an overcorrection. And by that overcorrection, I mean, when a person who's not in a press community can't ask any questions or can't have share their perspective or data or whatever, then maybe that's an overcorrection. And so I think we can say yes to both of those. Yeah. yeah, here's a thing that I think we can all agree is bad. Who was the person that you uh, were citing for this in the book? I can't remember the name right now. Uh, somebody well-known. But like, oh, it was... Um, the novelist, the African novelist, um, Adichie, right? Um, Chimamanda Adichie. Um, so, like, if you can't ask a good faith question without being villainized, mm -hmm. that's bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a pr And that happens yeah. on Twitter. That's the name of the game on Twitter, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just want to maintain that th there, there is a version of epistemic deference that yes. is defensible and that's more reasonable. Than yeah. That. Anyway. And so, I want to say that I, like, I don't know that I would call it deference at that point. Mm -hmm just because I don't know, I don't love the the word for something more positive, but mm. I agree that there is a version that is that is good and that like we yeah. should yes. We I tend to think deference is like a very Christian idea, right? I mean submitting yourselves to one another is like what we're supposed to do. But whatever, we're getting yeah, yeah. <laughs> <getting enough. laughs> I, I did want to talk about Bo Burton because he's my favorite okay. comedian Let and I freaking loved that hold special. hold on the Bo Burton because <sighs> I love N.T. Wright. Okay. And Bonnie mentioned what Bo Wright Burnham is to me, N.T. Wright is to Randy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a tough call. That's that's fair. If it helps, I have never heard of it Bo is Burnham. A tough call. What is wrong with you? Really? Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Sorry. Well, I've never heard N.T. Wright. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, in chapter eight, Bonnie, you can, yeah. you put forth some epistemic virtues that can help our knowledge crisis, and you share. A number of those. I don't want you to go into all of them. I really would love to hear more. You use N.T. Wright's phrase, an, an epistemology of love. And man, that sounds so good. You gave like three paragraphs to it. So could you just flesh out a little bit more for us? What might be an epistemology of love? What does that look like? What does that sound like? And what is that? Um, what is it exactly? I will try. I warn you, though, that I've been asked about this once or twice before in podcasts. And part of the reason why I quoted him like in a, a big block quote in the book is that I feel like I always butcher it when I try to, to <laughs> say it um, just off the top of my head. But his idea is basically that you're not seeking sort of a inhuman, impossible objectivity where, you know, you're just a, a mirror reflecting the world with, with no 
um, no input, no perspective of your own, no standpoint, um, but also not going into, you know, complete subjectivity where it's just about, you know, what you want to be true or what's what's convenient or profitable for you to be true, whatever, uh, you know, serves your your personal interests. And so his idea of an epistemology of love as a as a better uh, a, a virtuous medium between the two is that if you love the thing that you're you're trying to to learn about um, and obviously not love in like a, a sentimental sense right um, but wanting it to wanting to sort of like know and understand um, and I think he uses the word like celebrate it for mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. Um, then that gives you uh, a, a perspective where you know it's it's not you're not without regard for truth mm-hmm. you're not getting into to subjectivity but there is like an a, an affection and a posture there and and wanting to to like really know the the best of it and to to know it well and it's closely related i think to the the idea that I also only give like a few paragraphs to, which is the the Anabaptist idea of a uh, hermeneutics of obedience, where you know basically their idea is that when you're reading scripture, if you're not prepared to obey it, you'll find it harder to understand. And so both of them are are very much about like how are we seeking the truth and how are we coming to the information we're encountering, and are we trying to make it serve our interests or are we coming to it as it actually is? Yep. which reminds me of so much of Jesus in the Gospels. But do you have any thoughts on this idea of an epistemology of love? Only that it's another kind of identitarian deference. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Right? I should defer to the the person who's obedient and their interpretation of Scripture, right? It's part of their identity. No, I I think um, I would just call it epistemology, (laughs) (laughs) what he's describing, right? Um, Unless your understanding of epistemology is rooted in like the 17th century or something like that's just what we're doing (laughs) we might not use the word love although some people would i suppose but yeah i think what's more unique because you philosophers do mostly hopefully have a love for the truth and a love for and a passion for getting to like what's at the root of this argument or this supposition whatever but when we talk about normal people (laughs) non-philosophers um we're not always operating from an epistemology of love we don't always love the truth we love being right we love being yeah. you know winning a debate we love you fill in the blank i think that's where it really fits yeah for the folks who learned the word epistemology you know in my first chapter for the first time <laughs> yeah yeah did we ever actually define yeah. it in this episode go ahead maybe we didn't bonnie you want to do that <laughs> just in case uh uh well i feel shy doing it in the presence of <laughs> philosopher. <laughs> um, the gist of it is that it's like the branch of philosophy that is concerned with knowledge itself. You know, how do yeah. we acquire it? How do we uh, distinguish between true knowledge and, you know, belief? Um, what's the difference between like fact and opinion? These kinds of questions. Yeah. And if you've been wondering the whole episode, what the heck that word means, apologies. Yeah. <laughs> That's our bad. <laughs> uh, okay. So last question in the, I think it was uh, chapter nine. Uh, literally laughed out loud at the beginning of the chapter when you reference Bo Burnham and one of my favorite songs from his uh, Netflix special from uh, the post-pandemic. If you haven't seen Inside, just go watch it. It's it's brilliant. It's not an easy watch, so like psychologically difficult at times, so don't do it with your kids, but, um, yeah. but absolutely brilliant. And I think about it a lot, and in particular that song mm-hmm. and the emphasis on the internet. Um, so I wanted you to give us uh, just a quick 
overview of what you're doing in that chapter, why the internet is going to kill us all, and uh, <laughs> if there are any practical things we can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so this the song is "Welcome to the Internet," uh, and it's it's very sort of frantic and unsettling, um, and he's he's describing just like the the chaos and absurdity of being jerked from you know something very serious or something very sweet into um you know like you should kill your mom is one of the (laughs) quotes from it which is Um, weird to laugh at that but i promise if you hear it in the song it is funny (laughs) (laughs) it's a very funny song it's very well done i had to quote pretty selectively (laughs) to keep out some of the uh some of the quotes that out of context and without yeah. seeing the song, just wouldn't wouldn't Brazos sit right. wouldn't have published it. <laughs> yeah, standing is a good minute out on the page there. Yeah. But yeah, and I think if you, especially if you are, you know, around our age of an age where you can remember the time before the internet, but you also, in a sense, grew up with it, it's very like evocative of of what it feels like to be plunged into this environment um, and and have to figure out how to navigate it, and so. I don't remember how, when exactly when that came out, but I'd seen it recently enough when I was starting to write that chapter, which is, you know, significantly about how do we handle ourselves with the internet and other media as well. But I think for a lot of people, it, it is the internet that is the the main thing to be handled. And so the chapter is getting into a lot of much more pragmatic stuff about choices we make around our our news consumption and our habits and we're replacing our attention so much of which especially at this point in for me in the like book podcasts and and promotion process seems like well, this is all so obvious like you know did i really need to spell this out for people and then i like go up to my bedroom and spend two hours scrolling mm-hmm. on my phone right and it's like oh yeah this is why this is why i spelled it out because mm-hmm. it is so obvious and yet it's also something that we all need to be told so often if as the subtitle says your brain is broken and i i do feel like my brain is broken mm-hmm. by the internet and and by like the the media environment in which i live and work and uh it's something that i have to you know continue to deal with and the the bo burnham song welcome to the internet is uh you know, recognizably the product of another broken brain that is yeah. aware of its problems. I yep. think about it every time my toddler, who is uh, about 19 months old now, runs over to and grabs the television remote and brings it to me for me to turn on Daniel Tiger for him. And I think of that line from that song, you know, mommy let you use her iPad, you were barely two, and it did all the things we designed it to do. And I just think, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's real. That's real. Yes. Yeah. Um, the book at times made me grateful and proud to still be a newspaper subscriber, Bonnie, because wow. I... Uh, and I'm not a newspaper subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> it feels good to just, like, get your news in a bunch of Do you iron it? Papers. I don't iron it, man, but <laughs> it feels good. I, I, I'm never going to give up on it until it goes away, and it will go away at some point. But I love not having an algorithm to my news. I love mm-hmm. being able to just read what's what's in print there and hopefully have a decent source that's not super biased and all that business. But it... It just scares you to think about, it scares me to think about how manufactured what we see is on the internet and how um, echo chamberish our world gets when we live our lives on our devices and get all our news from our devices, which are 
trained and formed to give us the particular stuff that we're looking for. We need to cut the cord and and try to look for other sources and other avenues for for knowledge, for news, for for media as much as possible because man, it it really is breaking our brains, I think. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't really have anything to add um to that. It's it's a grim diagnosis in a lot of ways. Um and I I waver to some degree on you know how how much hope is there you know mm-hmm. how how many of us are going to really try to to deal with this in a sustained and and honestly you know i think it's like lifelong way um i do take some hope though in the fact that people do increasingly seem aware that there's a problem and when mm-hmm. i say you mm-hmm. know knowledge crisis for the most part people are like oh yeah and yeah no yeah. i know i know about that I have that. Including yeah. like Gen Zers. Like they know. Yeah. 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 A lot of them are and much it, better at it than I am. And it does sound way sexier to say epistemic crisis than knowledge crisis. Let's yeah. be honest. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Greek yeah. is awesome. Well, Bonnie Christian, thank you so much for joining us again. The book is called Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. It is a, a, a I would say it's an important book. It's a really yeah. great read, f- relevant to every, each and every one of us. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for joining us, Bonnie. Yeah, thank you for having me, even even after uh, not liking Chapter 7. <laughs> <laughs> no, worries, no worries. Don't worry about this guy. Yeah. Have a good night. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you're enjoying the show as much as we are. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode, if it's good enough. If anything you said really pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, or if you'd just like to send us booze, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Catch all of our hot takes on Twitter at at PPWBpodcast, at Randy Nye, and at Robert K. Whitaker, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.